Oh man, I'm just in love with God's presence. In love with God's presence. <clears throat> I love that part in the song where it says, uh, um, why do I worry? Why do I worry when I serve the God of the universe? who's got the world in the palm of his hands. Why do I worry? Jesus mentions this in Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be looking in 2 Kings 5, but we've got a few scriptures we're going to go to before we get there. <clears throat> but in, second, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks of some things, and he says, why do, you, why do you worry or why are you anxious about tomorrow? And then he points us to something uh, in nature that's rather uh, simple. Is he points to a flower. And he says, why do you worry? Because when you look at the flowers, does God not clothe them? So the idea is, is that the value of you is greater than the flower. But if God is orchestrating the events for this flower to be beautiful, how much more will he orchestrate the events to make you and I clothed, taken care of, all of the above? And he crescendos this kind of thought in Matthew 6, when he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things that seem, you seem to worry about, those things will be the things that God will provide. So in other words, Jesus is saying, don't worry about these other things. You worry about being righteous and being at one with the king. And if you worry about that and let that be your main concern, then suddenly everything else in the natural realm will begin to work itself out in its own unique time and its own unique way. But as Jesus is telling them to look to the lilies or look to these flowers, how many of you know if we looked at those in the wintertime, what would it look like? See, it's one thing to trust God in the season of provision where you're beautifully clothed with the blessings of God. It's another thing when the grass withers and the flower fades and all you have is the word of God that's going to stand forever. So Jesus is saying this principle of don't worry that God's in his perfect time. He's going to close it. But how many of you know that each season of our life is just that, a unique season where God is doing something and trying to accomplish something in our life? When I begin to look at the trees in the wintertime, they look dead. Right? And if you don't believe me, just come look in my yard. There's leaves. And so I don't rake them. I chop them up with a lawnmower. What do you think about that? I don't care your judgments. I chop them up. I shoot them out in the street and let the city come through and do their sweeper and sweep them up. Come on. Had to get that off my chest. I ain't going to tell you what else I do. Y'all will fire me up here. No, it's not that bad. But I shoot my leaves into my neighbor's yard, and I keep going with the lawnmower until it shoots all my leaves into their yard. But then I go back and chop them and shoot them the other way. So just, you know, give me, give me a break here. But when I look at a tree in the wintertime, 
It looks dead, doesn't it? So I can't judge a tree by the winter season that it's in, okay? And so many times we're judging people by the fruit they produce, but we don't even know what season God has them in. And you might be going in a winter season and it's like, there's no fruit. I feel dead. I don't feel God. Nothing seems, I can't hear his voice. Nothing's going right. This ain't happening. And this ain't happening. But you might just be in a winter season. And what I learned about in science class is the tree isn't dead and the bear is just sleeping. The tree is sleeping as well. That when the weather gets a certain place and when the circumstances hit a certain pitch, that tree will go dormant. So it's not dead, it's just merely sleeping. Look at your neighbor and say, hey, I'm just sleeping right now. I'm just sleeping. I'm just sleeping. Don't judge my fruit right now. I'm sleeping in here, okay? I'm sleeping. And don't get too sleepy while you're sleeping. Come on now. And I think it's odd. What an odd parallel that we see when Lazarus dies for four days and Jesus hears the news and doesn't immediately come back to solve Lazarus' problem. But when Jesus does finally appear on the scene, what do we find out? They're coming to him and say, if you'd have been here, Jesus. If you'd have been here, my brother would be alive. Jesus, if you'd have been here, I'd still have my marriage. Jesus, if you'd have been here, I wouldn't be in this hard place that I'm in right now. Jesus, if you'd have just been here. And Jesus says, your brother's not dead. He's just sleeping. See, he's changing the perspective of how we judge things that we see. And what you're seeing in your life that looks dead, I want to submit to you, it's only merely sleeping. And there will come a time and a season when the ingredients are just right that God will raise that thing from the dead. But in this season of winter and of this season of darkness and in this season where it do, you don't know and it doesn't look good, you have to remain faithful unto God so that the character is built so that when you get to the place of blessing, you can actually bear up the thing God's trying to raise up in your life well that was good I don't care who you are you say amen amen you can say amen have you ever seen a Jackson Pollock painting well I want to tell you it looks like a big mess it looks like somebody grabbed a tube of paint and just squeezed it randomly with different colors but when that mess is arranged in a certain way, it begins to appear beautiful like art. Okay? See, if I grabbed a tube of paint and started squeezing on it, I couldn't get two cents for my work of art. But I can put that same tube of paint in Jackson Pollock's hand, and it can go for millions. What does that mean? It's not necessarily who's making the mess, it's who's involved when the mess is being made. 
So if we are in God's hand while he's orchestrating these things in our life and while we are experiencing these things, God isn't just making a mess in your life. He's doing something so complex it would appear to be a mess, okay? But actually what he's doing is he's making a work of art. He's doing something so gradual and so precise and so complex that we've got to come to the place where we quit asking why and we begin to just surrender into the thing that he's called us into and surrender to that season that God's pulled us into and walk faithfully until we endure that season and approach the next. Because if I don't be faithful in the season of suffering, suddenly when I step into the next season, I will not have produced and sowed the right seed that garners and protects the destiny of my future. So if I'm in this season right now with God and it looks really dark, the key is to be faithful because I've, it's not just about today, it's about tomorrow. So if I'm faithful with today, my tomorrow and my investment and my future is going to be safe because yesterday I did what I was supposed to do that led me into tomorrow, okay? And this is what God is bringing us into. And there's times of your life it's going to seem really dark. Matter of fact, when David was writing of this great shepherd, well, David's writing the most beautiful poetry in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And then he explains to us in this poetry what the shepherd is like. And he says in Genesis, or, uh, sorry, Psalms 23 verse 4, he says this, Yea, that I walk through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why will I not fear? For you are with me. So that's saying this. I'm stepping into this dark season not knowing what's going on in my life. And I can endure it and handle it because I know God is with me. Now what this thing was speaking of here is that shepherds, in order to get to greener pastures, would take their sheep uh, through these deep ravines in which the sun did not shine because the ravine was so deep. And sometimes they would grow up with thorns making a, 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 a oh, how could I say it, a canopy of thorns over the top where the shepherd and the sheep are having to go to a place that even though it's daylight and the sun's shining, it's completely dark. And so what David has found was is that even though I'm going through the dark valley, the shepherd's with me. So if the shepherd is with me in that dark season and I'm a sheep, that means the shepherd might have even led me there. In other words, if you want to get to new pastors, you better be able to go through the valley of darkness that connects you to the greener pastures that are ahead. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so this is about faithfulness. So Jesus has led us into this dark place. And what we have to comfort us are the rod and the staff. I can't see the shepherd. I don't even feel him. But you know what? Every once in a while, I hear that staff beat up against that rock. And I take another step. Okay, God, you're still here. See, sometimes when we begin to judge things by our feelings, we make very wrong assumptions. 
when God wants to give us a heart that can hear him and ears that can hear. The, the issue in the book of Revelation to all the churches is he that has ears to hear, not eyes to see, ears to hear. Uh, God is speaking to us in a still, small voice. And so we can't go by our feelings or what we see. We're being brought to a place by God where we would trust what we hear beyond anything else. And that, my friend, is what faith is. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of the Lord. And so faith is the only entity that pleases God, and this is where he's bringing us to. And, and this is what I think is so odd, is we remember the story when Jesus is walking on the water, and it's like 3 a.m., and as he's approaching, Peter says, call out to us, and we'll know that it's you. I'm sorry, but who else is going to be walking on the water at 3 a.m.? Don't you just want to get Peter and just... He's like, it's a ghost. <laughs> Why does he think it's a ghost? Because he's like, there's no way God could be in the middle of this storm. And God's like, no, I'm actually walking on the water hanging out. <laughs> I'm not even rattled by it. Matter of fact, he's asleep another time in the storm. Why is he asleep? Because storms are a part of life. Get used to it. Get used to it. Get used to it. Get some oomph. Dig your heels in. Quit letting every little tragedy knock you out of this place for a month at a time, and then you come back every time you're feeling a little bit better. Once you learn some faithfulness and dig your heels in the sand and just say, you know what, I ain't moving anywhere because I'm standing on the rock. Amen. Where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. God, if it's you, call out to us. So when Peter heard his voice, he knew it was Jesus. And sometimes all you're going to have is the voice. Sometimes all you're going to have is the voice. So when we're going to these seasons of darkness, we can be comforted because God is there. Matter of fact, He's still leading you. He's still leading you. So He's connecting you from one green pasture that was good into the valley of the shadow of darkness, which is connecting you to another good place. And so as God is closing one door, he's opening another. But it's heck in the hallways, isn't it? It's hard in the in-between. So in that place of darkness, we're called to just be faithful. Keep listening to God. Keep digging in. Don't give up. Don't, don't quit going forward because you're going to miss out on that green pasture. And you'll end up going back to pastures you've already been and getting comfortable. Let me tell you something. God doesn't care about your comfort level. The whole of American church is only worried about people being comfortable in the pews. I want to tell you something. Jesus does not care about how comfortable you are. He's working on you to make you into the most maximum potential God-glorifying, reflecting into the universe entity so that he can get the glory that is deserved due his name. And this is what God's doing to us. He's stretching us. He's stretching us. And sometimes it's just really, uh, really hard. Really hard. But we've got to embrace it. So sometimes it feels like uh, when we're in the season of darkness that God isn't there. That he's not God there. And sometimes uh, we only feel like God is God when we're winning. You ever notice that? Right? You ever watched your team play and you're praying, God, give us the victory. 
right? And then they lose. See, this is what the primitive cultures did, is that they said, our God against your God, and if we win, then our God wins, and your God's weaker than our God. And so it was all placated on this battle and this competition. But I'm going to tell you something. Jesus Christ is not like that. Jesus Christ isn't like that. Jesus reveals himself uh, according to a different principle. Now, there was a moment in Scripture in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 20, where Ahab is worried. The Syrians are becoming into power, and they are looking to be the world power of the time, and he's scared to death. But the Syrians have this uh, older mindset when it comes to gods. They believe uh, the, the primitive cultures, even the Greek pantheon, all the gods weren't perfect. They had flaws. They had issues, right? So the difference between the Hebrew God and the other gods was that the Hebrew God didn't have flaws. He was perfect. He was a creator. And so when the Greek pantheon or, or these uh, Mesopotamian gods, they all had like issues. Like, like they would fly off the cuff and get angry. They would uh, do these strange things to their children, which would then make another entity or, or whatever. There was just all this folklore and mythology based on the gods just not being perfect. Uh, so they bring, the Syrians bring in this ideology into war with the Hebrews. And they realize that every time that they're going to war against the Hebrews, they're losing. And so what they're thinking is, is saying their God is the God of the mountain. Their God is in a very high place. If we drag them down into the valley, we can defeat them. So the man of God has heard what the Syrians are saying and he goes up to Ahab and he tells him, God's going to give you the victory. Not because you're anything special or not because you did the right thing, but because the enemy's boasting that God is God here, but he's not God there. And to show him that I'm God down in there, just as much as I am up there, God's going to give you the victory. So when David is talking about the valley of the shadow of death that God's leading him there, he's saying, God is in the mess with you. God is in the mess and the junk and the chaos with you. God is not afraid of trouble. He's not afraid of your sin. He's not afraid of what you've done. He's not against you because of this or that. He's right in the mess with you saying, here I am. Would you come to me and would you lay it at my feet? So the same God that is God in the mountaintop when you're winning is the same God that is in the valley when it feels like you're losing. See, God is ruling the earth under a different kind of principle. And there's this common misconception that God is only good when good things are happening. But I want to submit to you, God is good all by himself. And he's the fountainhead of all goodness. As a matter of fact, we wouldn't know good if it wasn't for God. But God has governed the universe in such a way by giving us free will that there's moments where it doesn't look good. Okay? It doesn't look good. But that doesn't change who God is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what happens is when we let our circumstances bleed in to form our ideology of who God is, suddenly we miss out on the good God because we've allowed circumstances to tell us he's not good, when in fact anything good that we have comes from him because he is the foundation and standard of goodness, that this is just who God is. So God is good all the time. And all the time, 
God is good. And this is a real reality that we are in. But the trials that we go through make us feel like God is silent. You ever just been there where you just have not heard the voice of God in a long time? Some of you saying, man, I may never have heard the voice of God. Say, God wants to speak to you. He wants to speak to you. But when we're in times of silence, I've got to lean back on what I already know. So Jesus says he would never leave me or forsake me. So either I'm more true than Jesus or he's a liar. I choose to believe Jesus isn't a liar. Matter of fact, I'm staking my word. I'm staking my entire life on the words of Jesus. I, I just am. That's what it is. And I don't always have evidence to back everything up, but I'm staking my life on the words of Jesus. And he said that he would never leave me or forsake me. So I'm, I'm going to ride with Jesus. Now, if I let my heart lead me by how I feel, I wouldn't have got up and preached this morning. I would have kept hitting snooze and kicked my feet up and said, God, you deal with them people. I'm going to enjoy myself. Huh? Right? But as soon as my feet hit the ground, there's a standard put on me. Where the Word of God is calling me to declare and proclaim the glory of God into the universe. So I'm not going into the feeling modes. I'm going to hit in the shower. And if my heart doesn't feel it that morning, which most morning it does. I love getting up and bragging on Jesus. But uh, when my heart isn't right, as soon as I hit the shower, I'm telling my heart what it ought to do and how it ought to feel and what the proper emotions actually are. So I'm being ruled by the logos or the wisdom of the universe put there by God. I'm not being ruled by my heart that is here today gone tomorrow and so that gives me a consistency that I can build my house on where when the storms come I won't fade God shows us this that he's not ruling the earth by what's called a retribution principle retribution principle is this do good get good do bad get bad and that does happen. You reap what you sow. That law is definitely there. But that's not the only law governing the universe, I want to tell you. Because how many of you did good and got some bad? So now the life of Jesus is turning this principle on its head. Jesus, did he ever sow any bad seed? And what happened to him? The prime of his life a 30-year-old man gets pinned to a cross. What's Jesus saying here? The universe isn't, isn't ran by the retribution principle. But watch this. Jesus, even though he's pegged to the cross, still rises from the dead. So he's saying, don't worry about the retribution principle. I just need you to be faithful. And if you follow me, even unto the cross and unto death, I'm still going to bring that thing to life and raise you from the dead. So don't be worrying about this justice reality of why did this and that didn't happen. Well, I did this and I didn't happen. That's the whole story of the book of Job. I'm just getting all over the place today, okay? Just go with it. The book of Job is all about this. What is our motivation unto righteousness? When Satan pops in, he's saying, huh, 
What's going on around here in the throne room of God here? And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Seems kind of odd or whatever. But then Satan asks a question that's incredibly right. He gets to the heart of the motive. Well, does Job not fear you for no reason? Isn't he being governed by the retribution principle? He's doing right, and so you're blessing the heck out of him? Take away the retribution principle, and then let me get in at him, and let's see how righteous he truly is. So God pulls it away to test the motives of Job. See, if you're only serving God when you do right and you're getting what you want, but then when bad things begin to happen and then you just, you don't have the stomach, then your motivation isn't your love for God. Your righteousness isn't unto God. Your righteousness is because you're getting good things. So God will sometimes pull back from the retribution principle and say, I'm going to pull back the good because I need to see why you're really in this thing. Because if you're not in this thing because you love me, it's not a righteousness unto God. It's a righteousness unto man that the world understands but I'm bringing you into a reality that's on a much higher plane that says come hell or high water I'm going to serve God with all my heart with all that's within me and I'm going to give him all the glory that I can muster up out of my life that's what God's doing in the dark place he's defeating the retribution principle where it doesn't matter if I get good or bad. If I get good, praise God. If I get bad, well, that stinks, but praise God. I'm not going to be moved by who loves me and who don't love me. Because I'm loved by the King and the King loves me. And that's what's going to move my heart. See, he's trying to get Job to quit asking why. Now, we'd do a lot better if we just quit asking why. Because it's so complex, God can't express it to you. He pulls us into the place of faith and trust. And that's what this thing's all about. What is hope if hope is seen? We talked about that in recovery meeting. If I can see something, how's that hope? It's just there. I just go possess it. But those things that I have not yet apprehended, I'm hoping and believing that God's going to bring me into them. So the whole deal with the book of Job is, Job is asking, why is this happening to me? But his friend's got an idea of why it's happening to him. Oh, there's secret sin in your life, Job. <laughs> you know how just God is. Retribution principle. How many of you know you ain't got what you deserved in your life? Come on now. You'd all be locked up if, if, if the truth got out. Come on now. Let's get real. But he's bringing Job into this reality where Job thinks, no, I'm righteous. I haven't done anything wrong. The friends are saying, yes, you have done things wrong and God is just and this is why this is happening. And so you see this thing playing out. So Job is self-righteous. His friends are operating according to the retribution principle. And then God has to show up. And when God shows up, he don't answer why. He don't answer why. 
He starts telling Job, where were you when I created the earth? He's bringing him back under submission to the reality that he is created and God has never been touched with the hands of anyone to be made anything. That God has always existed and always is. So he's bringing God back into the perspective. He's bringing himself back in this perspective to Job of how holy and unique he is. And when the story plays out, Job gets double ends up being the one that has to pray for his friends to be saved who were so self-righteous. The self-righteous one have to get prayed by the one they were accusing of being a sinner. What are we saying here? God isn't ruled by the retribution principle. What you're experiencing right now is not because you are so bad. And it's not because you're so good. God is calling us into a place of trust. Well, we'll keep serving Him in the times of darkness and the seasons that are dark. We're reading the Jesus Golden Book. Golden Book doesn't make a Jesus book. One night we were reading it before bed with Kennedy, and there was a picture there of Jesus carrying the cross. And I was like, you know, normal me, I knew that Jesus carried the cross, and and so my daughter looked over at me and says, Daddy, the cross fell down. I said, oh my goodness, she has only seen the cross as a completed act. She's only seen it in its glory after it's already been standing. She doesn't know the process of what happened in order to get it to that place. I thought, oh my goodness. I said, no baby, he hasn't fallen Jesus is carrying it. See, when Jesus called us to follow Him, what does He say to do? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Me. He never indicates a time in which that cross is going to be pulled up and completed on this side of heaven for our life. He says, while you're here, this is always going to be a place of process where you're going to have to carry this thing so that if you'll carry this thing, I'll get it to the place where your life and your destiny become a completed work in God-honoring fashion, and then we'll stand that thing up. But for now, I need you to embrace process and embrace the cross and begin to move toward as my voice is leading you. What is that saying? God is carrying the cross, which means He's carrying our mess. And now He's asking you to carry the cross. To carry the cross. To bring it with you. See, sometimes I think God is just saying this, and this might not sound real spiritual, but I think God's saying, just shut up and trust me. You're saying, would you just stop? It's just like reading the book of Job. It's, it's exhausting. It's an exhausting book. And there's parts of it you're like, well, that sounds right. And then you read another part, well, that sounds right. And you're, well, that sounds right. And you're kind of like, well, who's right? It's confusing. It's just men 
talking. But there's seasons in our life where we just need to be quiet. And we just need to trust and just continue to make moves unto God. Coming to a close here, 2 Kings chapter 5. Second Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. There's a great man by the name of Naaman, but he's got an issue. He's got a mess. Second Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army, the king of Syria, was a great man, and his master, and, and sorry, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Wow. He was a mighty man of valor. Look at this. But he was a leper. So here's this mighty individual who is accomplishing great things. And it even says that because of the Lord, he's been given victory as a Syrian is getting victory, he's a mighty man of valor, but then there's a comma and a conjunction that says, but. You ever had somebody give you a compliment and then follow it with a comma and a but? That's a big old but, I tell you. Well, today's my two weeks notice, so I'm just... Put that in. Help me, Lord. But he was a leper. And I think we all have that comma and conjunction in our lives. Where we can say this, 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 and this, but then there's that but blank that haunts us, that dogs us, that just eats away at us with guilt. And his is translated here as leprosy, but there was a broad word in those days, so that could have been a legion or scaly skin. It was, it was something, though, that was causing great concern, uh, a cultural version of some sort, because uh, generally when it comes to... Um, Diseases of this nature, they have a smell with them as well. So it was an odor-causing thing. So here's this mighty man who can't really cover up the stench of what's going on behind the armor and the title that he has been given. And the thing about leprosy in its truest sense, what we know it of, is, is leprosy allows... Uh, things injuries to happen and the problem is is that leprosy takes away nerve endings so you quit feeling things so you don't know when you've hurt yourself see pain is a good thing because when something hurts it tells me I should stop this so what leprosy would do was it would numb everything and so that when an injury would happen they wouldn't know it it would get infected and then fall off or have to be amputated See, when we lose our ability to feel, the best parts of us will fall off and will disqualify us from what God has called us into. 
See, when we're experiencing pain, the first thing we want to pray is, God, take it away. When God's saying, no, I need you to feel this a little bit so that you can process the pain and where I'm taking you so that you can make the right move in the right season at the right time. Verse 2, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Why uh, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of leprosy. Verse 4, So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. So he's told he can be healed, and he puts together this great sum of money and this great offering that he's going to bring. Now what is happening here is He's a great man. He's a mighty man of valor. He's got his armor on. Underneath that armor is the real reality of who he is. But he's still trying to hide behind something in order to earn something that he cannot earn. How many of you know you can't buy a miracle? You're going to have to depend upon the goodness of the one who is offering the miracle that there's nothing you can really do in and of yourself to move his heart. And so he's bringing, and what this offering would equate to in today's terms is like, uh, uh, I want to say like $750 million. Now, if you want to give that offering, I will take that offering. So, but I can't promise you a miracle. But I will take that for ministry. <clears throat> Tax is refundable gift as well. <clears throat> Where am I at here? Oh, yes. The offering. So he brings this thing with him and shows up on the prophet's doorstep. And he sends a letter, verse 6, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, I, Am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends a word to me to cure a man of leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. And so the king tears the robes. He's thinking this is a sign of war. This is a natural crisis. But in reality, this is the very thing God is setting up to create peace. How many of you know that sometimes we can uh, assume that a tragedy is actually something that God's using to begin to create something of peace? And so we have a short-sighted king here who is mad at the only person that can help him and get him out of the jam to begin with. Verse 8, And when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king and said, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh 
shall be restored and you shall be clean. Watch what happens in verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Verse 12, are not Abania and uh, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. See, the trip to Jordan that this man was telling him to come to wasn't just like down the road. It wasn't like the Jordan was right here. Where he was addressing him, Jordan was 40 miles away. So he was basically saying, I've come this far to you and you're going to turn me away another 40 miles. But how many of you know that the journey ain't always over when we think it's going to be over? Uh, there comes a point where God might redirect us and say, hey, I need you to go another 40 miles uh, this way. And so, and so he's upset. And so he's like, go to a river. I got better rivers at the place where I came from. See, sometimes God wants to do your healing in a place that looks worse than the place that you just came from. Sometimes God wants to do the healing in a muddy Jordan. Not the pristine springs that we would imagine. See, sometimes you got to come back the way you came to revisit some stuff you got to deal with. And you might have to go 40 miles back before you go any further. See, what they would do in, in Naaman's culture is that they would get in the river and they would begin to do incantations and prayers and the river would supposedly wash their sins and, and send all this stuff uh, away from them, that it would be caught in the stream and that God would be cleansing them or their deity or whatever it was they were praying to. And so basically, Elisha's telling Naaman, do what you could have did back where you were. So Naaman's upset. I could have prayed to my own God and did what you're telling me to do right where I was at. What's the idea of this journey? But what God is trying to teach him on the journey is it's not about the stuff. It's not about the title. It's not about the armor. It's about the butt. He was a leper. And until God can strip you of everything that you're standing on separate from His righteousness and His grace, and you can stand there in that place, God can never touch the place He needs to touch in your heart to set you free and to get you into the destiny that He's called you to get into. So this was a stripping. This was a stripping. Verse 13, But His servants came near and said to Him, my father, is it a great word that the prophet has spoken to you? Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the Lord of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was 
clean. Now get this in verse 17. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. See, what he wasn't willing to do at first, he's now saying, I want this to become my practice. See, there's a place you get with God when you begin to surrender yourself into Him. What used to be uncomfortable now becomes second nature and becomes your first inclination, not your last. And so he says, basically what he wasn't willing to do, he was going to take back home with him to begin to implement. So he couldn't stay there in the muddy Jordan, but you know what he did? He took earth back with him. And you know what I bet you he did when nobody was looking? I bet you he got some water and made a little mud bath. And I bet you he made a regular practice of rolling around in that old dirt, humbling himself to remind himself where his healing came from. And it was when he humbled himself under the hand of the mighty God. See, the reason he brought back earth is he was going to go back to build an altar with the same dirt that cleansed his soul. See, some of you need to get some of this up here, down here in the front, and you need to get it in your house. You need to get it in your house. You need to start leading your family like a man of God. You need to start letting your children see you praying. If you've got sin or videos or music that you need to get out, you need to get it out of your house. And you need to set a new standard. And you need to take some dirt from this place. And I know it looks humiliating and I know it looks like muddy water. But let me tell you something. It's the entity that heals. Is the name of Jesus and humility under the hand of the mighty God that we serve. We started our, our scripture with uh, Psalm 23, verse 4. It says that, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for God's with me. Now let me show you the New Testament reality. Are you ready? Matthew chapter 4, verse 16 through 17. The people in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, a light on them has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is near. Jesus has exposed the valley of the shadow of death to prove it does not exist. And if we follow Jesus, no matter where we are, he will light it up. And he has shown the way. And at the end of that path is life. The next time uh, somebody says, hey man, I'm going through the valley of the shadow of Say, whoa, a light has shone on people in deep darkness. It's Isaiah 9-2. Jesus is saying, this reality is here. Realities here. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I pray that you would.